Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Thanks to Raycon Wireless Earbuds for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Raycon Earbuds started about half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds on the market. So go to buyraycon.com slash gold today and get a 15% discount off your Raycon order. All of the major stock market averages hit new record highs today, save the Dow Jones, which has been having a little bit of trouble, but it will likely hit another new high because what is driving all the optimism on Wall Street, it's not just the vaccine, which everybody is looking forward to, but all of the Fed stimulus that we're going to get not only before the vaccine, because the vaccine is still several months away at best. So we've got to get through uh, the winter and the flu season without the vaccine. But the idea that Fed stimulus is going to continue even past COVID, even if the vaccine works, we're going to keep getting uh, monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus. And that is really what is driving the stock market. And the same factors that are pushing up stock prices are also pushing up gold prices. We saw a pretty big rally in the price of gold, up better than $40 over the last two days. The lion's share of those gains took place yesterday, although we had some follow-through today as well. In fact, yesterday morning started off as another typical uh, sell-off in the gold market. You saw gold break about $10 early in the morning uh, before the U.S. stock market started to trade. But that sell-off was immediately met by buying, and the buying continued throughout the day. Not only did we see a lot of strength in gold, but a lot of strength in the gold mining stocks. In fact, some of the names in our portfolios hit new 52-week highs today. Of course, those are the minority. The vast majority of the mining stocks are not at 52-week highs. They still have a ways to go. I believe, though, that a lot of these stocks will hit new 52-week highs 
before the end of this year. I think you're going to see a very strong finish uh, in the gold sector uh, into December. I don't expect a lot of tax loss selling uh, that we've had in in typical uh, years with respect to uh, these names. I think a lot of that selling uh, has been washed out years ago. I think you're going to see some buying. I think some portfolios are going to be looking to add these names in a little bit of a window dressing uh, to their portfolios at the end of the year, because I think we're poised for what may be one of the best years ever uh, for the gold sector in 2021. It's also shaping up, I believe, to be one of the worst years ever for the U.S. dollar. Dollar index bouncing a little bit today, but still trading below 91. We still have the euro above 121 and looking strong. And the Swiss franc continues to gain on both the euro and the dollar. And again, that to me is signaling that investors are looking for safe havens from inflation. And inflation is the driver. It's what's driving the stock market because the stimulus is inflation. That is what it's all about. It's printing money uh, to monetize government debt, to artificially uh, prop up asset prices. And that is what is driving investors into gold and will drive them into gold in a bigger way in uh, 2021. And in fact, for all the talk about inflation, and I mentioned this in my last podcast uh, the Fed's fighting inflation with inflation with reference to fighting fire with fire. I mean, maybe that works. Maybe you can fight fire with fire, but you can't fight inflation by creating more inflation. And the markets still haven't come to grips with this. In fact, even though you're hearing a lot of talk about inflation, it's mostly to dismiss the concerns. And one of the main reasons that so many analysts are dismissive. And I you know, listened to another one of these discussions yesterday on, uh, on CNBC about inflation, uh, is that the bond market is not signaling a concern, right? So people are looking at the bond market and they see that rates are still very low. I mean, even though the yield on the 10-year has backed up quite a bit, it's still below 1%. So it's hard to say that a 10-year yield below 1% is a warning sign for inflation. After all, if investors were concerned about inflation, why would they be willing to loan money to the U.S. government for 10 years at 1%? Therefore, the bond market is not showing any signs, any worries about inflation. Therefore, we don't have to worry because the bond market uh, gets it right. And if there was a concern, uh, we should see uh, uh, the canary in the coal mine, uh, the bond market, right? Bonds should go down. Because in the past, that has certainly been the case because inflation is a major concern for a lender. Part of the interest rate charged on a loan has to be the inflation expectations that are in the mind of the lender. Because when a lender loans out money and he's not going to get paid back for 10 years, he has to think about what the money that he gets in 10 years is going to buy because he's giving up that money today. He could buy stuff with it, but he's not. He's loaning it to somebody else. The borrower is buying stuff with the money and the lender is going to get the money back in 10 years. Now, if the lender expects a lot of inflation and he's waiting 10 years to get his money back, he has got to be compensated for that loss of purchasing power. And the way that a compensation is paid is in a higher interest rate. So if lenders expect higher inflation, 
then they will build those expectations into interest rates. And if somebody wants to borrow money and not pay it back for 10 years, they have to be willing to compensate the lender for his loss of purchasing power over time. Right? And of course, if the borrower also understands that there's going to be inflation, he is okay with paying this higher rate because he realizes that over time, when he repays the loan, uh, he is going to be repaying it in money that has less value than the money that he borrowed. So everybody is looking at the failure of the bond market to reflect this, right? Because interest rates are so low, therefore investors are clearly not concerned about inflation. Except everybody is missing the elephant in the living room, and that is the Fed. And actually, there's a few elephants in the living room in the form of other central banks that are distorting the bond market. The bond market is not working the way it has in the past because the Fed is artificially manipulating interest rates. The biggest buyer is the Federal Reserve and you know other central banks. And when the Fed buys bonds, it doesn't care about losing money. It, it doesn't matter to the Fed how much inflation is because the Fed is not making a loan the way people would make a loan. Right? They're not judging the investment merits of the loan. The loan has got a political motivation. The Fed is trying to affect policy. It's trying to influence the economy, stimulate the economy, prop up the stock market. That is the purpose of the Fed's buying treasury bonds. So the Fed is not looking at treasury bonds yielding under 1% and thinking, wow, this is a lousy buy. Why do I want to buy these bonds at less than 1% and hold them for 10 years? We're going to take a big loss. The Fed doesn't care about losses. I mean, the Fed doesn't have to work for its money. It creates out of thin air. What do the guys at the Fed give a damn uh, how much they lose by buying these low-yielding bonds? And so when you have the Fed in the market, uh, the whole thing is distorted. And then the Fed's big presence in the market also sends a lot of speculators into the bond market. And these speculators are just buying for the short run, right? Because whenever there is a sell-off in the bond market and you see a backup in interest rates, like we saw recently, what happens? Speculators who can borrow money real cheap, also thanks to the Fed, come into the market and buy the dip. Why do they do that? Because they know they can sell to the Fed. They can flip the bonds back to the Fed because the Federal Reserve is trying to keep a lid on long-term interest rates because the economy is so loaded up with debt. And again, thanks to the Fed, that the Fed has to keep interest rates at rock bottom uh, so people can afford to pay. Also, the Fed is trying to maintain these excess stock market valuations and key to the overvalued stock market is the overvalued bond market because we keep comparing stocks to bonds. And so to make that comparison favorable, the Fed has to keep the bond market propped up and keep interest rates down. The speculators know this. So they come into the bond market and they buy, not because they think it's a good long-term investment. They're not going to hold these bonds to maturity and clip coupons for 10 years. No, they're buying to flip to the Fed. So they're short-term speculators. So that's what's going on in the bond market. You have speculators uh, that are front-running the Fed and trading who have no intention of holding to maturity. And then you have the Fed who will hold to maturity but doesn't give a damn about how much they lose because it doesn't matter because it costs them nothing to print uh, Federal Reserve notes. So the bond market is broken. You can't look at the bond market. You know, it'd be like uh, I got a thermometer 
and the thermometer is broken, right? It just always reads 98.6. And so I take someone's temperature and they, they seem sick, but the thermometer says, oh, 98.6, I guess they're okay. But, you know, at some point the guy is breaking out into a sweat. He's, he's shivering. I mean, he's really, really sick. I mean, he's burning up if you touch him. At some point, you know, you can't keep relying on that broken thermometer. You got to, you know, realize it doesn't work and you got to pay attention to all these other signals that your patient is sick and ignore the broken thermometer. And that's what's going on in the bond market. You know, once upon a time, they had something called the bond market vigilantes, right? These were, uh, I think this term came out in the 70s, but who were the bond market vigilantes, right? This was the market police. And what these guys would do, in addition to investors who would demand higher interest rates if they were worried about more inflation eroding away the value of their loans, the bond market vigilantes would see the signs of rising inflation, of rising government deficits, and they would rush in and short the bond market, right? They would try to profit from front-running investors who might, uh, you know, figure this out a little later. So these guys would come in, and the reason they were the vigilantes is because they would actually force the government to change policy, right? They were policing the government. Hey, your deficits are too big. You got to cut government spending. You got to raise taxes. Hey, the Fed, you got to raise interest rates. You've got these bond market vigilantes that are coming into the bond market, forcing up interest rates. They're going to keep on rising unless you do something to adjust policy. Those guys are down or those guys are gone. You don't have to worry about the bond market vigilantes, because the Federal Reserve is the bond market cavalry. And the Federal Reserve has unlimited firepower, right? The Fed can overwhelm the bond market vigilantes. Doesn't matter how much they sell, the Fed's got unlimited ability to buy. And the market doesn't really care. So the bond market vigilantes are not going to be in the bond market, but they're going to be somewhere. They're going to be in the foreign exchange market, and they're going to be in the gold market. That's where they are. Because the Fed can't stop the dollar from falling and the Fed can't stop gold prices from rising. And that's where you're seeing it. You're seeing the inflation show up in a weakening dollar. Why are people getting rid of dollars? Because they don't want to hold on to them. Because they're going to be losing purchasing power. So they want to get rid of dollars and they want to hold other currencies that will lose less purchasing power. And if they don't want to hold any currencies at all, they're buying gold. And so that's what you have to look at. Forget about the bond market. That's been corrupted. And the bond market will crash eventually. But in the meantime, if you're looking at the bond market for an inflation sign, you're looking in the wrong direction. Look at the dollar. Look at gold. And what's happening? The dollar's going down. It's making new lows. Gold made new highs. It pulled back. But it's gathering momentum. It's building support. It's getting ready for a big breakout. This is inflation. That's what's driving the stock market, but that is not a positive for the stock market. The stock market is a bubble being fueled by the inflation that the Fed's creating. And everybody seems to be complacent about this bubble. In fact, I was listening to a discussion on CNBC Fast Money, which is a show that used to have me on. They got a couple of good guys still on Fast Money, uh, so I don't necessarily want to pick on that show. Uh, But they had a discussion about the stock market And they were talking about the stock market to GDP, which is at an all-time record higher. It's like something like 180%, right? The the value of all the stocks relative to the GDP. Now, they should be talking about this 
as a bad sign, as an indication that stocks are expensive, right? Warren Buffett, this is like the Buffett rule, right? You know, this stocks are very, very expensive uh, based on any historic, um, you know, valuation metrics, particularly uh, as a percentage of GDP. And pretty much all of the, the hosts agreed or everybody who was having this conversation agreed that this time it's different because they were saying, you know, it's really like comparing a stock to its revenues, right? And so stocks can trade at a premium to revenues. And so it's okay for the stock market to trade at a premium to the GDP, except that's an irrelevant comparison. I mean, this is apples to oranges. The GDP does not represent revenue to the U.S. stock market. I mean, first of all, the GDP includes a lot of stuff that is not part of the stock market, right? It's all the spending in the economy. Uh, a lot of this has nothing to do with publicly traded companies, right? The stock market is just publicly traded listed stocks. There's all sorts of other assets and other businesses that are part of that GDP. So to say it all should count as revenue to the stock market is ridiculous. It's just a way for these guys to overlook an obvious warning sign that there is a problem. Now, the only reason that the stock market may not crash is because the dollar may crash more, but they never bring that up. That's why I always talk about where the stock market's gonna go priced in gold, because I don't know where it's gonna go priced in dollars, because I think they're willing to sacrifice the dollar to save the stock market. But the real value of stocks collapses even if the nominal price does not. And that's what matters to investors because ultimately, you know, you can't eat your stocks. People own stocks because they want the money that they're going to get by spending the dividends that the stocks pay or by selling the stocks in the future and then using the proceeds to buy the goods that they actually want. Owning stocks is a means to an ends. The ends is you know, your, the consumer goods that you're going to buy with your dividends or your sales proceeds. So if the cost of living is going up faster than the nominal price of your stocks, you are worse off. And anybody buying into the U.S. stock market today and paying these inflated prices in real terms is going to be worse off, which is why they need to be buying gold. You know, Raycon wireless earbuds make the perfect holiday gift. I mean, first of all, they're small, so they're great stocking stuffers. But also, if you think about it, we're doing a lot more virtually now uh, in these COVID days. And so I think people will actually get a lot more use out of their Raycon earbuds than might have been the case prior to COVID. With seamless Bluetooth pairing and a comfortable noise-isolating fit, you can start listening right away, right out of the box, and you can listen for hours, especially if you're going to listen to the Peter Schiff Show podcast. The audio quality is amazing. I couldn't tell the difference between this pair and the more expensive pair that I had before I got my Raycons. So they're comparable to what you're going to get from other premium brands except at about half the price. And you know, I'm a value guy. I like to save money and there's a lot of value in Raycon earbuds. Best of all, you can use this for calls, for music, work, play, at home, on the go. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And if they've already have a pair of wireless earbuds, well, you can always use a spare. On top of Raycon's everyday great prices, they're offering my listeners 15% off right now. 
So go to buyraycon.com slash gold today to get your 15% discount off your Raycon order. That's buyraycon.com slash gold. Buyraycon.com slash gold. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. You know, one of the few corporate CEOs who's actually talking about this, who's talking about the risks of the dollar losing uh, purchasing power, because of course, a lot of US corporations, they sit on retained earnings, they have cash, and they should be worried about the loss of value uh, of the cash that they're holding on to. And the guy who's talking about it is Michael Saylor of MicroStrategies, except he's buying Bitcoin which makes absolutely no sense given the reasons that he is articulating for buying it. See, what Michael Saylor is saying is he is worried that inflation is going to reduce the value of their retained earnings. He doesn't like the Fed's monetary policy. They're printing too much money. They're doing too much quantitative easing. Uh, That's going to reduce the value of the dollar. And so he doesn't want to just hold on to a depreciating asset. And so to guard against inflation and to play it safe, he's buying Bitcoin instead. Now, that makes no sense at all because he's not playing it safe with Bitcoin. He has to know that Bitcoin is very speculative, even though he believes that Bitcoin is going to go way up, he knows that it can also go way down. I mean, he's smart enough to realize that it is a very risky bet. It is not a sure thing uh, that Bitcoin is going to be a store of value because that's what he claims he wants. He's not saying he's looking to hit a home run or he wants a 10-bagger. He's claiming he wants a store of value. He wants something that has more stability than the U.S. dollar. Well, if that's really what he wants, there are a lot of choices uh, that he could take that are way better than Bitcoin. I mean, first of all, he could put the retained earnings into other fiat currencies that are not as bad as the U.S. dollar. That's what I do personally. I have uh, a lot of money in foreign currencies. I mean, I advise a lot of my clients who don't want to be in equities, want to have cash to own uh, foreign bonds. You know, we have a foreign bond fund. I have a lot of my clients buying our bond fund as an alternative to holding U.S. dollars hold the currencies that those bonds are denominated in. And I'm buying shorter maturities because I think worldwide interest rates are going to rise. So I don't want to take that interest rate risk, but I do want to mitigate the risk of the dollar losing value relative to other uh, fiat currencies like the Swiss franc, which I mentioned today, just keeps hitting new multi-year highs uh, against the dollar and of course against other currencies as well. So there's no reason that Saylor couldn't do that. I mean, it's very easy to buy other currencies. Now, I get it if he says, look, all the central banks are too loose. They're all creating inflation. Fine, buy gold. 
Right? And in fact, he was asked about that. I saw an interview with him in which he was asked, why aren't you just buying gold? I mean, why are you buying Bitcoin as a safe haven, as a store of value when you can obviously just buy gold? That's obviously far less volatile. If safety and preservation of purchasing power are your goals, wouldn't gold uh, achieve that goal? Uh, with a lot less uh, risk than, than Bitcoin. And this is what Saylor said, which makes absolutely no sense to me, which I think, again, just shows that he's just shilling for Bitcoin. And I know he's the hero now of the Bitcoin community because he's this CEO that's making this big bet with shareholder money on Bitcoin. And so far, you know, it's helping his stock price. But, you know, you live by Bitcoin, you die by Bitcoin, and this stock price is going to tank uh, when Bitcoin comes down. But... I don't think he's being genuine. I think he's being disingenuous uh, because his argument against gold makes no sense. What Michael Saylor said, the reason that he was not buying gold is that miners are producing more gold and therefore the supply of gold is not fixed, that there's going to be more gold in a year than there is now because the miners are pulling it out of the ground. And so therefore he doesn't want to buy it because there's inflation in gold and he wants an asset where the supply uh, can't go up. And that's why he's buying Bitcoin. But of course, the supply of Bitcoin is going up. It just eventually is going to stop going up when it gets to 21 million. But there is inflation in Bitcoin right now. There are miners. They are making more Bitcoin. In fact, I think the supply of Bitcoin today is growing faster than the supply of gold. But yes, I understand that at some point you reach a cap and then there's going to be no more. At least that's what everybody says. Although who knows what happens when we actually get there, if the miners can somehow agree uh, that they're going to make more. But let's just assume that that's not going to happen. And Bitcoin is, in fact, a cap to 21 million. This is the reason that Sailor is buying Bitcoin, because there's going to be more gold in the future. And I'm not sure how many years it's going to take before we hit 21 million. I, I really don't know. But that's when the supply of Bitcoin stops growing. And apparently the supply of gold can always grow. But this argument makes no sense because gold has been mined for thousands of years. I mean, that's why we have gold. I mean, uh, that's why it's out of the ground. I mean, gold is not naturally in the form that we use it. All the gold had to be mined out of the ground. That's why we have gold, because we have miners. So gold has been a safe haven, a store of value for thousands of years even though the supply goes up every year. So why should Sailor be worried about that now? Why should all of a sudden the small increase in the supply of gold on an annual basis all of a sudden negate thousands of years of history that shows that it doesn't matter? Because first of all, the economy grows, population grows. So why shouldn't the supply of gold grow too? I mean, that's one of the good things about it is you have a, a small amount of inflation in gold that generally uh, is smaller than the increase in the economy. Uh, and so you have a relatively small, uh, steady decline in consumer prices, which is what we had in America during the 19th century. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with that. But also, if Saylor bothered to actually look at some of the facts, he would realize that the supply of gold probably over the next 10 years, the annual growth is going to be below its historic average. That's because we've had a real big bear market in gold where the cost of mining has gone way up, right? But there hasn't been a commensurate rise in the price of gold. Even though gold prices have gone up, 
the cost of mining until recently with the drop in oil prices, but it has become very expensive. And of course, a lot of the gold mines, when you have a gold mine, the gold you mine first is the cheapest stuff to get out of the ground. So as you mine the lower cost gold, you're left with the higher cost gold. And so less gold gets mined. But what we haven't had in the last decade is a major discovery of gold. And one of the reasons we haven't had a major discovery is because gold mining companies haven't been investing in exploration and development. So there has been a lack of buildup of future gold supply. Now, I think eventually gold prices are going to take off and then the gold mining companies are going to attract capital and they're going to be able to use that capital to try to increase their reserves. A lot of the reserves have been depleted, but it takes a long time, A, to, you know, to find the new gold, but then to put a mine into production. It just doesn't happen overnight. So there's going to be a big lag between the increase in the price of gold and an increase in the supply of gold that's mined because the higher price uh, makes it more attractive and more viable. So nothing that Sailor makes sense because gold is positioned probably better than it's ever been historically. There's about to be a surge in demand for safe havens and alternatives uh, to fiat currencies. Uh, and you don't have the supply coming from the mines. Now, I know some people are going to say, well, it's going to be Bitcoin. See, Bitcoin is here to replace gold. So nobody needs gold because you have Bitcoin. And that is a bunch of nonsense. I mean, look at all the articles I read this last week about that, about how Bitcoin is eating gold's lunch. It's sucking up its entire uh, market cap. This is sheer and utter nonsense. Bitcoin isn't making a dent in gold's market cap. Bitcoin has its own market cap. It's got nothing to do with gold. And that market cap is a bubble. And it can implode at any moment. And it will. Because if you think about Bitcoin, if you think it's a payment mechanism, right? It's a medium of exchange. It, it's not a very good one. It's expensive to, to operate. It's cumbersome. It's inconvenient. I mean, that's why very few people use Bitcoin for transactions to make payments, right? Because it's not very good. There are so many other ways that you can uh, transfer value and make payments that don't involve Bitcoin. On the other hand, if you're looking at Bitcoin just as a store of value, it, it's lousy as a store of value compared to gold, which is a store of value because gold has actual value that can be stored. Gold is a real commodity that doesn't lose any of its properties over time. That is unique to gold. And so you can store all the value in gold when you own a gold coin. Because in five years or 10 years or 100 years, somebody can melt that coin down and do something with that gold. That value is preserved in that coin. But Bitcoin doesn't have any value to store, so it's not a store of value. So as a store of value, Bitcoin can't compete with gold. And it doesn't, as a payment mechanism, it's no good at that either. And just the fact that the supply is limited to 21 million means nothing. Anything can be created with an artificial limit to the number, right? Being scarce doesn't make something valuable, especially if nobody wants it. Because think about it, there's 21 million Bitcoins. If nobody wants them, are they scarce? And think about how many Satoshis there are. It's not like, you know, people couldn't get a Satoshi if they wanted. There's trillions and trillions of these Satoshis. So they're there. There's plenty of Satoshis to go around if people want them. The problem is, what if they don't want them? 
What if all the people that own them now want to get rid of them and there's no one to buy them? You know, CNBC, they keep bringing out, uh, you know, uh, guests on CNBC, uh, portfolio managers, they come on. And I, I get a kick every time they ask these guys, you know, what are you doing with Bitcoin? It's almost like you got to do it, right? You have a guest that's coming on. He's talking about the stock market, the things that he's buying. And they always get the Bitcoin question. I mean, more so than the gold question. They don't say, hey, are you buying any gold? But they they like to ask people, are you buying Bitcoin? And pretty much everybody says no. I mean, nobody from the conventional uh, portfolio management business is buying Bitcoin. But I think it's interesting that a lot of these guys want to acknowledge that, well, you know, we're not buying it, but it is a new asset class. It's a developing asset class. So, you know, well, you know, we're going to monitor, but we're not actually buying any of it. I mean, this is all nonsense. It's not an asset class. It is a fad. It is a bubble. That is the argument of the people who are trying to get you to buy Bitcoin, trying to convince you this is some new asset. It's not. Fool's gold has been around for centuries, right? This is just the latest iteration of fool's gold. This is fool's gold for the digital age, right? It's not gold 2.0. It's fool's gold uh, 2.0. But I want to finish up the podcast by talking about another factor that I also believe is helping to power the stock market higher. And this is the idea that student loans are going to be forgiven. In fact, there was an article that came out yesterday. Chuck Schumer uh, basically said that on day one, President Biden should just by executive order, forget about Congress, we don't need Congress, just with the stroke of a pen, let's just wipe out $50,000 worth of student loans for every student that has debt or every American that has debt, right? Just, just do that. Now, I don't know if this is going to happen or not. I do think that there's going to be a lot of pressure on Biden for student loan forgiveness. And obviously, that is a huge carrot to wave in front of constituents, right? That you're going to forgive their loans. I mean, you're really buying votes. You're just handing out a lot of money uh, to a voting class. Uh, and so there's going to be a lot of pressure. This is certainly uh, one of the issues that the the far left is very much in favor of, uh, led by you know AOC and the squad and you know Bernie Sanders. Everybody wants to forgive a student debt. And of course, the irony that is lost on all these liberals is that the reason that students have all this debt is because of the government. If it wasn't for the government, students never would have been able to borrow money because the lenders wouldn't have made the loans. It's only the government guarantees that enable the loans. So it's because of the government that all these young kids uh, took on all this debt to buy overpriced degrees. And of course, eventually under Barack Obama, the government basically started to make the loans directly. They cut out the middleman. They no longer guaranteed the loans. They just started making the loans. And again, it's similar to the Federal Reserve buying bonds. The U.S. government doesn't give a damn if the borrowers can pay back the money because it's not their money. They're just trying to buy votes. They're just trying to help uh, the educational establishment overcharge uh, the students. Uh, so the government starts loaning all this money out without any regard to the ability uh, of the borrowers to repay. And the reason that all these people have these massive debts is because of government. It's all this well-intentioned socialists that caused the problem. And now they're, oh, this is a terrible problem. And, you know, the solution is just to forgive uh, the debt, right? Which, of course, is not a solution. That's actually another problem. Because the minute you start forgiving the debt, well, now you create a massive moral hazard. I mean, what would happen if $50,000 worth of student loans were forgiven? 
Can you imagine the impact that would have? I mean, colleges would be like, oh my God, this is Christmas. Because now we can really raise tuition because our students are going to know that it doesn't matter if they have to borrow all this extra money to pay even more tuition because they're not going to have to pay it back. It's just the loan's just going to be forgiven. And of course, the students are not as concerned about taking on all the extra debt because they know it's going to get forgiven. I mean, it's not going to be a one-time thing. If they do it once, they're going to do it again. Everyone's going to expect it. And in fact, up until now, there were people that didn't want to take on debt. There were parents that used to save for their children's education. They're going to feel like suckers. You busted your butt. You worked hard and saved money to put your kid through college. And now you should have just let them borrow the money. And you could have spent that money yourself because the loan is just being forgiven. So the moral hazard there is in the future, no one's going to pay for college. Nobody's going to work to try to avoid going into debt because you're an idiot. Take on the debt. It's going to be forgiven. So this is just going to be a massive moral hazard if this actually happens that is just going to exacerbate the problem that the government created by interfering uh, in the, the college uh, education. So it's just going to mean that degrees are going to become even more and more expensive and a bigger drag on the economy. And of course, the legality of this, I, I don't think it's legal, but I mean, that never stops the government from getting away from stuff. But what I want to talk about is the issue that no one talks about, nor will anyone talk about but me, and that is the inflationary aspects of student loan forgiveness. This is another massive monetary stimulus, which is helping to drive the market higher because forgiving student loans, right? And they're talking about $50,000, at least that's what Schumer talked about. Now, I don't even know how that would work. I mean, it would be terrible if they just forgave up to 50,000 worth of loans for everybody. That would mean someone that took out $50,000 worth of loans, he gets his entire thing wiped out. Someone who took out 30,000 is gonna feel like a schmuck for not borrowing more. I mean, maybe if they say, we'll forgive half of what you borrowed up to 50,000, I don't know that. Maybe that wouldn't be as bad a moral hazard. I mean, it's bad no matter how they do it. There's no good way to do it. Although the only way that they could do this in a good way is if they say no more student loans, right? We're never going to, we admit that it's our fault. We caused the problem. So we're going to forgive the student loans that exist, but in the future, no more student loans, no more government guaranteed student loans, no more government made student loans. You want to borrow money as a student, you convince a bank to loan it to you, right? Good luck in the market, right? Now colleges, you better cut your costs because that's the only way you're going to have prices low enough for anybody to, to afford, but that ain't going to happen, right? So, you know, they're, they're not going to do it the correct way. And of course, the other correct way would be to pay for it, to raise taxes or cut other government spending to finance this instead of paying for it through inflation, which is what they're going to do. Because forgiving student loans, let's say they forgive a trillion dollars worth of student loans, right? Just pick a number. I think there's like one point uh, seven, 1.8 trillion. It's getting close to 2 trillion. But let's say they forgive a trillion dollars worth of student loans. That's like printing a trillion dollars and just dropping it from helicopters. That It's it's pure inflation. Now, a lot of people, because I, I tweeted this out, and one of the reasons I'm talking about it now, because there was a lot of confusion. Because people were thinking, well, you know, why is this inflationary? Because, you know, debt is being defaulted on, uh, so debt's going away, or the asset uh, is going away because somebody's uh, liability is somebody else's asset. So why is this inflationary or why isn't it deflationary? Under normal circumstances, it would be true 
that if a loan was forgiven or defaulted, the gain to the borrower would be a loss to the lender, right? Because now the borrower doesn't pay back what he owes, but the lender doesn't get paid what he was owed. And so that lender loses money. His loss is the borrower's gain, right? So that is an inflationary outcome because the money, the extra money that the borrower now has to spend because he doesn't have the debt to repay is now money that the lender can no longer spend because he loaned out money and he's not going to get it back. This is a completely different story when it comes to government student loans. Now, there's two types of loans that would be forgiven. One is where the U.S. government guaranteed a private loan, right? So some bank made a loan to a student and now the student owes the bank. But the government guaranteed the loan. So if the U.S. government tells the student, you don't have to repay your loan, the lender doesn't lose anything because now the U.S. government has to pay the bank instead of the student. So the student gets his debts wiped out. So now he has money to spend in the economy that he was going to give to the bank. Right now he could take that money and buy more consumer goods because he doesn't have to pay his, um, his loan. But the lender is no worse off. The lender's still going to get his money back. Where's that money coming from? Well, the the Fed's going to print it because the government is running a deficit. They're not going to raise taxes or cut other spending to make these payments to the banks. So the Fed is going to print more money. And now the government's going to give that money to the banks instead of the students giving the money or the, the, the former students giving the money. Some of these former students are almost retired. In fact, there are people who have actually retired who are on Social Security that are still making loan payments. But this is pure inflation because there are no losers. The borrower doesn't have to repay his loan, but the lender gets paid. He just gets paid by the government. So the money supply expands by that extra money because now both the lender and the borrower have the money. The other way these loans came into existence is if the government made the loan directly. There is no bank. The government loaned money to an individual. The individual is supposed to return that money to the government. So even if the Federal Reserve printed the money, to enable the loan in the first place, when the student graduates and repays the loan, that money comes out of circulation. So it's not a permanent expansion of the money supply. It's just temporary until the loan gets repaid. But if the U.S. government says, hey, you students, uh, you don't have to pay back the money that we created and loaned you. That money can stay out in circulation. It never has to be returned to the U.S. government. Again, that's pure inflation. The government made loans and the loans are never paid back. So it's like it just printed money and gave it to the students. It didn't loan money to the students. The Fed ran up a bunch of money and they gave it to the students to pay for college. So this is the same thing as QE. It's just massive inflation. It is a huge uh, QE program for students. And again, this money goes directly into Main Street, right? The students who have their loans forgiven are not likely to then just start buying more stocks, right? Because these are people that are making payments, right? If you're making $200, $300, $500 a month in loan payments, and now the government says, you don't have to make those payments anymore, I doubt many of these people are going to take that money and invest it in the stock market. No, they're just going to buy more stuff. They're going to spend it. So this inflation, unlike 
you know, the quantitative easing programs that have goosed uh, Wall Street and the stock market, this is going to be Main Street. This is going to push up the consumer prices for everything because all these people who used to be making loan payments now have more money to buy stuff. Now, of course, is it good for those people? Yeah, sure. I'd rather buy consumer goods than repay student loans, right? It's certainly a win for the debtor who no longer has to repay the debt and now he can do more fun things with his money, right? Then pay debt off, right? Anything is better than that, especially if the debt's been forgiven. But this is not a freebie. Somebody's got to pay. And that is everybody else who didn't have a loan that was forgiven. Because the people who had their loans forgiven, now they can go buy stuff that they couldn't buy before because they were paying off their loans. But in the process, they are going to bid up the price of everything. And so now all the people who didn't have any loans, who were buying stuff, are now going to have to buy less stuff because the price of everything is going to go up. And remember, too, all of these students or former students that no longer have to repay their loans, they have more money. They're not more productive. They're not producing more goods and services than they would before. They're producing the same amount. But now there's more money. So prices are going up. And this is how everybody loses. The government is not going to raise taxes to fund student loan forgiveness. They're going to create inflation to fund student loan forgiveness. And that doesn't mean that we get these student loans forgiven for nothing. There are winners, the debtors, the losers are everybody else. Everybody else who's going to have to pay higher prices for everything they buy to make it possible for these loans to be forgiven. And so if you want to avoid that inflation tax, if you want to protect your wealth from that inflation, then you got to get out of the dollar because that's what's inflated. All these student loans are in dollars. They're not in any other currency. They're not in gold. And, you know, they're not in Bitcoin, but they're in dollars. And so that's what's being inflated. And if you want to avoid the tax, you avoid the dollar, but you don't do it the way Michael Saylor is doing it. You don't buy Bitcoin because when you buy Bitcoin, you subject yourself to a whole new set of risks. If you want to mitigate your risk, you don't take on all these unknown additional risks. You buy something that has a long-term proven uh, track record as a store of value. I mean, the fact that Bitcoin has done so well over the last 10 or 11 years is meaningless. And of course, a lot of those gains occurred when nobody was investing. You know, when Bitcoin went from a penny to a dollar, how much money do you think was invested to drive it up there? And from a dollar to a hundred dollars. So a lot of the gains don't really count. I mean, Bitcoin really came on the radar in 2017, right? That's when real money started to move into Bitcoin, right? When it went from a few hundred dollars up to 20,000. So it really has about three, three or four years where real money has got into it. But that is not a long enough time horizon. Even the 10 years, if you count all the early years when it was nothing, even if you count that, that's not long enough. This is a massive gamble. And, and so if you want to gamble, if that's what you want to do, and you want to gamble on Bitcoin, that's a whole other story. I mean, I think there's a lot better bets that you could make. Personally, I'm putting my gambling money in a lot of these mining stocks and a lot of these junior mining stocks. That's how I want to gamble. I mean, I want to play it safe. I'm buying gold, right? Or I'm buying, uh, you know, good dividend paying 
foreign stocks that I think are going to be around, that I think are well-managed, that have good assets, global assets. They have products and services uh, that customers are going to be buying. They're going to be able to raise prices to compensate uh, for inflation. So that's what I'm doing with my safe money. If you want to take your risk money and throw it on Bitcoin, that's your prerogative. I just think it's a bad bet. I don't think uh, the upside potential is nearly as great as what everybody believes. And I think the downside risk is enormous. I see better risk reward in other assets that I want to speculate in. But if you want to be safe, if you want to protect yourself from the risk of inflation and dollar devaluation, then you don't consider Bitcoin at all. Because there's no way that you can believe that that's a safe uh, asset or a safe alternative uh, to uh, to U.S. dollars. So you want to get into assets that are real and that will protect you because the losses are going to be horrific. That's for sure. If you stay in dollars, uh, you're going to lose money for sure uh, through inflation. So you can mitigate that loss uh, by going into gold or other assets. If you go into Bitcoin instead, you may end up losing more money in Bitcoin than you would have lost if you stayed in the dollar. So it is not a viable alternative. And don't be confused by all of the hype and all of the uh, the Bitcoin bugs that are blowing smoke up your behind because they're trying to get more people to buy. I mean, that is the bottom line. Bitcoin as a pyramid is in constant need of more uh, people to join the party. They need more people to come into the market to buy so the people who are already in can get out. Uh, and like all pyramids, eventually it's going to come toppling down.